And we're talking today about the authority uh, of freedom. And, and so a couple of questions here. Number one, what does the concept of freedom mean to me personally? When you hear that word freedom, what do you think of? Like uh, we can uh, uh, immediately transpose it to the national sense. Like we're, we're, we're free as Americans, right? And uh, at least we... We hope we're free, right? We sometimes worry we're losing our freedoms. But certainly our country is not like the other countries of the world. We have quite a freedom uh, here in America that we uh, maybe take for granted sometimes. But then the freedom we're going to talk about today goes to a much deeper place because we're thinking about my spiritual freedom in Christ. We talked last week about being in Christ. And, and so there's the spiritual freedom, one of the spiritual blessings of being in Christ. And uh, I just wonder, what does my spiritual freedom in Christ mean to me on a daily basis? Do I take that for granted? Do I really stop and think about the fact that I'm free? Paul in Colossians tells us to be careful that we're not deceived and taken captive by the world because that's easy to happen today it really is and so what does spiritual freedom in Christ mean to me and that leads me to a third question that we uh, maybe need to be a little more I guess aware of what are those things that can take me captive right and so I would ask the question where would I like to embrace and enjoy even more of my freedom in Christ like if I stopped and pondered what freedom in Christ means to me and I said well I know I'm free in Christ here but I'd like to embrace that more and enjoy that more and sometimes I feel like I live a life that I kind of am taken captive by the world and I don't enjoy those freedoms that I have in Christ again paradoxology we're navigating the tension in our work and worship we're looking at the paradoxes of scripture and then we're looking at our doxology our personal worship and how we flesh these paradoxes out in our life and today we want to talk about the paradox of freedom and and in this kind of again it's seen throughout the Bible in different ways with a little different nuance attached to it but look first Peter 2 16 just a springboard verse today we won't spend any time here but live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God do you, do you see the paradox already in that verse right live free and how do I live free by becoming a servant of God, by living as a servant of God. And, and we see like over in Romans, Paul says it this way, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So it's like, how do I live in my freedom in Christ? I become a slave to Christ, a servant to Christ. It, it's, it's kind of like I'm going to be either a slave of this world or I'm going to be a slave of Christ that's the reality, and to find the, the true freedom that is, is afforded me in Christ, I need to become his servant or his slave. Um, I think I put this on the screen. Here's a quote from Tim Keller from Every Good Endeavor, connecting your work to God's word. I just thought this was a fascinating quote. Um, Modern people like to see freedom as the complete absence of any constraints, but think of a fish. Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it is free only if it is restricted to the water. If a fish is freed from the river and put out on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon even to live is destroyed. The fish is not more free but less free if it cannot honor the reality of its nature. The same is true with airplanes and birds. If they violate the laws of aerodynamics, they will crash into the ground, but if they follow them, they will ascend and soar. The same is true in many areas of life. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, those that fit with the realities of our own nature and those of the world. And so, for us in Christ, that can really apply to our relationship with the Lord because what does it mean to live out the freedom I have in Christ? And we're going to talk about that today. And 
this quote kind of raises some things that are very helpful to us. The kind of the goal, I guess the goal or message, uh, aim of the message today is number one, to see how we can enjoy and embrace the fullness of our freedoms in Christ. We are more free in Christ than we realize, right? And, and again, that's not a license to go out and do whatever we want. Um, that might be theologically true, but it's certainly not practically true, and it's, it leads to a life of, of conflict and, 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 and really unhappiness. But the other, then, the other goal or aim of the message is to be aware that we have an enemy trying to take us captive and trying to enslave us. So how do I live in freedom today? We're going to find this all in Galatians 5. The first verse has five simple points that we can pull out of that, and we'll take some of the verses below that and bring them into the discussion this morning as well. Uh, again, this is kind of a verse that just kind of sets the, the table for us. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, if you want to understand this paradox of freedom. And so today, uh, five simple lessons about our freedom in Christ and a couple of paradoxes that will help explain that freedom. And our big ideas, simple one, Jesus Christ is the authority of a life of freedom. I was going to say Jesus is the authority of a life of freedom. And I thought, well, Christ is the authority. How, how do I word that? I thought, really? Jesus Christ, his full name, is the authority on a life of freedom. You want to know about a life of freedom? We'll find out today what that looks like in Christ. He is the authority. And so here's our first point. We start here, Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We'll just stop there. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And there's our first point. A life of freedom was always God's intention. So take those two words, for freedom, and just know this, God has always been for freedom. God, God's desire for your life and my life is always that we would live in freedom. He's for freedom. He certainly is. Now, to understand this, let's go back to the Garden of Eden again, back to the beginning. We were there last week. We'll spend a little time there again this week. Back in the beginning, and, and look at these, this verse here back. This is a, actually taken from the Brian Study Bible just because it does a good job of of helping us see exactly where these two trees in the garden are. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east where he placed the man he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God gave growth to every tree that is pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in the garden, you have two trees right here, right? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the question that I came across this week as I was thinking this through is why did God put two trees in the garden, right? We know why this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is here. We know the purpose it serves. I'll identify it for us in a minute. But the tree of life, well, Adam and Eve are already what? They're already in God's image. They're perfect. They're whole. Why do we need the tree of life? I'll tell you at the end of the message why God put the tree of life here along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But over here, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one way we can understand this tree is to see this tree and to consider this tree really as a tree of authority because that's what it really represents, right? Like there in the garden, there's this tree and God says, there's a tree over there, just don't violate that tree. And when you, when you, when you, when you, when you avoid that tree, you're living under my authority and yeah there's a, a lot to be said about finding freedom by living under the authority of God in other words why should they avoid this tree uh, you might say well they should avoid the tree because if they eat of the tree they're going to die right but even more so because God said so like Eve should have sold the serpent now we can't eat of that tree because God's told us not to because God said so see he's the authority here 
but we know what happens. Now, the other part of the, this equation here, there's the tree of authority. There's also the garden of freedom. Like this garden that has a, you know, has a, it, it has like an entrance and the wilderness of the world is out there. So what happens when Adam and Eve disobey God, eat the forbidden fruit, and, and violate his authority, rebel against his authority? They are thrust out of the garden into the wilderness of the world. And like that fish on dry ground, are they free? No. They were, they were, God was always for freedom that they would thrive in the garden, in this garden of freedom. And there might have been some restraints in there, but that was true freedom. And, and what's fascinating is where are we at 6,000 years later? 6,000 years later, every person on the planet faces this basic spiritual reality. You are either what? In Christ, free in Christ, or you are enslaved in the world. Like that's really, when Adam and Eve died spiritually, that's really the picture of it, is they were kicked out of the garden into the wilderness of this world. You're either in the world, when you are saved, you are transported back into, we could say back into the garden of freedom, back into Christ. And that's what's going on even this very day, today. So, again, Hopefully it's becoming clear. Jesus Christ is the authority to a life of freedom. Jesus Christ is the one in the garden that told Adam and Eve to avoid that tree and live under my authority and all will go well. But they didn't listen to him, did they? Lesson number two. Back to Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Here's our second point this morning, real simply this. Spiritual freedom is the declaration of the cross. So the cross stands, we sang about that rugged cross today, how great that, that song is. But the reality is the cross is this declaration that you are free. If you have come to Christ, if you have been saved, if you have surrendered to the gospel, you have been set free. That's believing and receiving, right? It's believing, number one, I'm a sinner. Number two, Jesus is God. Number three, Jesus died for my sins. And then I simply receive the free gift of his forgiveness and yeah, his life. Because ultimately I'm saved by what? I'm not saved by his death. I'm forgiven by his death. I'm saved by his life. Because, because I'm not saved when I give my life to Christ. I'm saved when Christ gives his life to me. And he fills me and I become alive in Christ. I become a new creation in Christ. So here's the, the, the lesson we need to know, though. The reality is, <clears throat> is that there, there's a, a not-so-subtle message in this passage here. And the, the message is this, is that while we may have been set free and even declared free, we may not be living free. Like, that's what Paul's saying. Like, like you were set free to live free. So live free. Live, enjoy your freedom in Christ. We talk about being a brand ambassador for Christ and part of his brand, sure, it's love and it's peace and part of his brand is freedom. When you come to Christ, you are set free. Now, what, he, what Paul does here in this passage, and we're gonna jump down to verse seven through 12, and he takes a, like a coin and, and the, this coin has two sides and he'll show us the two signs of what can hinder us and keep us from enjoying our freedom. You are running well, he writes. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And note that word, the truth. That's really significant to what we're gonna, where we're going to end today. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if 
I, brothers, still preach circumcision. Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And, and the first thing he says that hinders us, surprisingly, is legalism or the law. Uh, the, the amazing thing what's going on here is that Paul came in and led all of these people through the cross to faith in Christ and to salvation. And then the Judaizers came in and said, yeah, but that's not enough. You need the law too. And the law is not just like 10 commandments. The, the law is like 613 rules that govern the life of the Israelite people. From the food you ate to the fabric of your clothes, there were all kinds of rules. And they came back and said, no, you've got to be under the law too. And uh, yeah, that's what's going on here. And the crazy thing is the Gentiles never had any association or relationship with the law. The law meant nothing to them. They, they'd never heard of the law. It's like, what? And they had everything they needed in Christ. He goes on. That's one side of the coin that can hinder us, legalism and law. The other side, it, there it is, hindrance. I've got to remember to click my slides. The hindrance of legalism or law. And we'll elaborate on some of this as we go forward this morning. Then, verses 13 through 15, for you are called the freedom brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And this would be the hindrance of license. This is the idea that, okay, I'm, I'm free in Christ, I'm forgiven, I have all his grace, I can just do whatever I want. I can live however I want to live. And Paul makes the paradoxical claim over in Romans 6, right, that, yeah, the more you sin, the more God's grace is magnified and the more God's grace grows. And then Paul says, but stop it. <laughs> like, like, yeah, that's not the way it works. Like we don't want to just magnify God's grace by going out and sinning and living a life of sin. And the reality is when you do that, again, you live a life of conflict, a life of where you're unfulfilled and you're unhappy. And so uh, just note the paradox there. The, this freedom to sin. And, and you can see the paradox in this passage, right? Because what does he say? If you look back there in that passage, how do we live in freedom? We serve one another, right? I serve one. Well, it's like, it's like the, the two commands are to love God most and, 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 and love others, you know, as you love yourself. And you could put serve in there. Serve God most, serve others. And that's how you find freedom, actually, in becoming a servant, as becoming a slave of Christ. Now, What's really fascinating is that, is that oftentimes the thinking logically today is that, so how do we combat this license to sin? Well, you need a law, right? Like the law will help you keep from sinning. And actually the Bible says the exact opposite. It's kind of, uh, what's fascinating is the Bible or the law actually is its own paradox. And I put, a, I put this on your handout. We're not going to go through this whole thing, but if you want to look at it today, I just put on there how the law is its own paradox. For instance, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, the law is its own paradox. And for instance, if you go to Deuteronomy, I think it's 28, you read the first like half of that chapter there, you'll see all the blessings associated with the law. If you keep the law, there's all these blessings. <laughs> and then, then you read this in Romans 3.20. Now what we know that whoever, uh, the, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So it's like here's this law from God and there's all these blessings if you keep it. The only problem is no one can keep it. 
No one can master it. No one can be declared righteous because of the law. And, and, and it goes on. Like the, 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 law, the Bible says the law is really good, but yeah, it stirs up your passion and makes you want to sin more. And those are the Bible's words, not mine. The Bible even says that without the law, we wouldn't know what sin is. So, so the law is its own paradox, and the law can simply not meet our deepest needs. So the best thing the law does for us, right, most important purpose of the law is to point us to Christ and the cross. That's the point of the law, to show us how we are such terrible sinners and we're so despicable and we just need a Savior, that we cannot do this on our own. So the irony of when, when people think, well, we just need a law to combat this license to sin, it works, the Bible says it works in the reverse way. Laws make us want to actually do the things we're not supposed to do. So, second lesson by Paul then is that we have been set free and declared free. Now we can live free. You have been declared free by the cross and Jesus Christ again is the authority of a life of freedom. He's the one who went to the cross, shed his blood to set us free. All right. Number three, going on. Back to our verse. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So here's the next thing we need to know. Do not submit again because here's the reality. To live in freedom is to be aware of what enslaves me. Messed up that slide there. To live in freedom is to be aware of what enslaves me. I just need to be aware of those things. Where can the world possibly take me captive? I need to be aware of that. Think about that. Let, let me give you just a couple of examples here. Six quick examples. Sin. Okay, that's a real general one, but sin. I mean, let's be honest. One persistent sin can get a hold of us and entrap us and, and won't let go of us and can enslave us. So we just need to know that, yeah, sin can be a hindrance. Um, I found this fascinating. Officials from Colorado Parks and Wildlife recently posted for a photo of a large rubber tire that was previously stuck around the neck of a bull, bull elk. The elk was four years old and weighed approximately 600 pounds and required heavy sedation before his antlers were cut to remove the burdensome tire. Officer Scott Murdoch said it was tight removing it. We had to move it just right to get it off because we weren't able to cut the steel in the bead of the tire. Fortunately, the bull's neck still had a little room to move. We would have preferred to cut the tire and leave the antlers for his running activity, but the situation was dynamic and we had to just get the tire off in any way possible. People on neighboring properties had reported seeing the elk wearing the tire for about two years prior, which suggested a potentially burdensome existence. Burdock said the tire was full of wet pine needles and dirt. There was probably 10 pounds of debris in the tire. According to Murdoch and other officials, the bull was back on his feet within minutes of being administered the sedative reversal. And how many of us today are not like that bull elk, right? Like we just have some sin that just has its, its clamps in us and we just can't experience the fullness of our freedom in Christ because of the sin. And we, thankfully, God's grace is greater than our sin, but we can also be set free from that sin. We can. Another one would be a relationship. Uh, this could be, uh, <clears throat> for some of you, a relationship is hindering your freedom in Christ. And it could be a friend who's judgmental and legalistic, you know, or, or it could be a friend who's always enticing you and tempting you to do things that you don't want to do and live ways that you don't want to live. Another one would be uh, an attitude. 
Like sometimes our attitudes are a hindrance. Uh, fascinating story in the Old Testament. The Jewish people have left Egypt. They've been in slavery in Egypt and they've been totally mistreated. And they're, they're in the wilderness now and they're getting a little tired of the manna. And listen to what it says here. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And any reason, any, 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 can you get today why sometimes we struggle with a bad attitude and can't see the things that enslave us. Here's Israel. It's like, like we had all that food for free. I'm like, no, you didn't. You, you are slaves. They treated you harshly and unjustly. And yet they want to go back to that, you know, where they were. And, and yet yeah, to be set free, we have to know those things that, that have their clamps in us, those things that can captivate us another attitude that's really prevalent is performance-based living maybe you know somebody and you live like if you're living a performance-based lifestyle you're not living for christ you're living for some other person or you're living for yourself because how people perceive you and how they look at you but you're not living for the lord because the lord's not into performance-based life in fact look down here in uh, verse 6 he says this for in christ jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You see, in the end, it's not about our performance for God. It really comes down to faith working through love. It's, it's our faith expressed through our love for God. That's what it's all about. And so, yeah, that's where freedom is found. Uh, how about a belief? Like sometimes our beliefs can hinder us. That's why it's important that, you, that you're in the Bible. It's important that you... Find good Bible teachers that you can listen to that won't give you false doctrine and lead you astray. That's the Gentiles' problem here, right? Think about it. I mean, they were saved and set free, and then in come the Judaizers and say, well, no, you, you have to keep all these laws and all these rules too, and it stole their freedom from them. Maybe it's a goal. Sometimes we set goals in our life, and, uh, and they're, they're wrong. Maybe it's the wrong priorities for your life, for your family, and it's stealing your freedom. I mentioned last week a very simple Trinitarian purpose that Paul had to reflect the glory of the Father, to be a brand ambassador for the Son, to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. If that's the goal, if your goal is something like that for your life and you genuinely and honestly live that out, you'll be free. You'll know a life of freedom. But sometimes our purposes and our goals in life do not align with God's purposes and we lose our freedom in the process. And then finally, number six is my pride. My pride. And, uh, and again, this, this is the sense where I just relinquish everything and trust the Lord. And there's freedom when I trust Christ and stop trying to do it all on my own. That's the simple reality. Last week's paradox, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm exhausted, I'm rested. When I'm inadequate, I am most confident. When I am vulnerable, I am secure. When I let go of my pride and just trust the Lord and let him fight my battles for me, there is freedom to be experienced and so the reality is though just because i've been set free and declared free i might not be living free and i need to be aware of what are those things that can come in and take uh, the joy out of my life and and steal my freedom in christ jesus christ is the authority on a life of freedom 
He most certainly is the authority on a life of freedom. Back to our key verse. So for freedom, Christ has set us free. And then stand firm, therefore. And uh, here's our next point, right from the heart of Paul. To live in freedom is to live out Christ. To live in freedom is to live out Christ. Stand firm, therefore. And I love those, those, those two simple words from Paul, to stand firm. We've mentioned this before, that this is kind of a unique statement to Paul. Paul talks about stand firm, stand strong, stand fast, stand against, stand mature, stand therefore. It's throughout his writings. And, and the reason Paul says this is because Paul tells us we are what? We are in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, I can stand firm, I can stand strong, I can stand against. So there's freedom. When I just stand in Christ, then I let him fight my battles. And I just trust him, and I just rest in him. We get a picture of this a lot for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. How many battles did they win when they just stood and trusted the Lord and he delivered them? Now look how Paul unpacks this for. Look back now at verse 2. We're taking some of these out of order here. But Galatians 5, 2, listen to what Paul says here. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Remember that line. He goes on, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For, though the Spirit, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So again, just picture this here. Okay, the the issue here is like circumcision and what does circumcision represent? Well, on one hand, it represents the law. It was a part of the law. It was part of the requirements. The Jewish people had to be circumcised. It was a big deal to God. And so he's saying here, hey, you know, if you keep circumcision, you got to keep the whole shebang. You're, You're obligated to the whole law. But you don't need to be circumcised. Because the other thing about circumcision, it represented an identity. It represented Israel's identity with God, with Yahweh. This was unique to to the the people of God. When they were circumcised, it, it set them apart from the other nations in the world. But here's what you have to understand. When you were saved, you know what happened when you were saved? You were circumcised, spiritually. God did. And you know what God cut out of you? He cut out this fleshly, deceitful, ugly heart that we have. And he gave us his heart. We now have his desires. We beat with his heart. We want what he wants. That's why when we're in Christ over here and we go and we move over here and start living in the flesh and in the world, there's conflict and we're unhappy because we want what God wants. We are a new creation in Christ. And so it's an amazing thing what God has done. So the lesson being made here then is that to live in freedom is to live out Christ. It's to fully trust the work that he has done. Now, the law can actually help us understand to some degree, this is really phenomenal, can help us understand to some degree the freedom we have in Christ. I'm going to show this to you in a fascinating way. Uh, show you a few things about the law that I, uh, something I learned about the law this week that was fascinating. <clears throat> but let's start here, right? Again, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Just remember that. That if you're relying on the flesh and on the law, if you're over here at the tree of the flesh and your self-works and self-righteousness, Christ has no advantage to you. But he will be your freedom if you live in him every day. So just note this, that we as Gentiles are not now or have never been under the law. 
At no point were, were the Gentile people placed under the law. And I'm going to show you this in a very powerful way. But let's start here in, in Luke 23. Christ is on the cross. It was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And so when that veil is ripped in the, in the Holy of Holies in the middle of the temple, that signifies that the law was, was fulfilled and anybody now could walk into the Holy of Holies. In fact, I was thinking about that reality. Probably nobody did that, but wouldn't that have been really cool? that like the next day for someone to go into the temple and march right into the Holy of Holies? Because in the Old Testament when you did that and, and, and prior to the cross, if you went into the Holy of Holies and you weren't supposed to be there at the right time and you weren't the right person, like you weren't the right priest, you'd be dead. you just... It was pretty significant to God. That's where His presence was. Now, through the cross, anybody can walk right into the Holy of Holies. I think it would have been so fascinating to picture that if anybody would have actually done that or tried to repair the, should we walk in there and fix this or not, you know? They would have been fine. I think that's pretty fascinating to consider. But it's even better because what the Bible, te- what Paul tells us now, he did that spiritual circumcision on us. Now, you are the temple of God and your heart is the holy of holies and God's presence resides where? Right here in your heart. When you get saved, he moves right in here. Sorry. But he, but he does because sometimes we live lives and it's like yeah, we've got to be, be aware of how we're living our life because, yeah, Christ indwells me right here. It's an amazing thing to think about. And so again, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. But we have Christ. We have the life of Christ. Now, let me show you this in regards to the law, right? We understand today we're not under the law, right? We, we, we get it, right? We get it, Okay. For the death of Christ answers the civil law. When Christ died, the the veil is ripped and all the civil laws that were made up, that 613 laws, we're not under those today. Most people agree with that. And then the blood of Christ answers the ceremonial law. All those sacrifices and all the blood that was shed, we don't bring sacrifices to the church anymore, do we? Why? Christ is our sacrifice. But what about this? What about the moral law? I mean, certainly... I'm under the Ten Commandments, right? Like, I'm under the, the, like, I need to keep the Ten Commandments. Now again, it's not like God wants me to be a liar and a cheater and an adulterer and an idolater, but watch this. Here's what most people miss. The life of Christ answers the moral law. The life of Christ actually answers the moral law. Like, I don't need ten, ten, ten rules written on stone. I have Christ. I have Christ right here. I can trust Christ. And so the reality is we are totally out from under the law. All three aspects of the law. It gets better though. Let me show you something. I learned this recently. Heard it from Ray Vanderlaan who understands some of the context of things in Bible times and helps explain the scriptures a little better sometimes when we understand the context of that day. And I heard someone else teaching it this week and I thought, wow, that is so powerful. And it fits right in here this morning. Did you know that the Ten Commandments were a marriage covenant? They were a marriage covenant. That's what's going on. And I never caught that before. That when God gave the the Ten Commandments to Israel, it was a marriage covenant between, between Yahweh and the Jewish people. In fact, let me just give you two verses here. 
Look, look at this in Exodus 19.5. This is right before he gives the Ten Commandments. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And throughout the Old Testament, it does tell us that, that, that Israel was God's bride. It says that very clearly. In fact, more clearly than the Bible says that we are the bride of Christ, it says that Israel was God's bride. In fact, it also says throughout the Old Testament that Israel was a rebellious and adulterous people. That, that was their relate, that they just weren't faithful to God. But here's this marriage contract with them. I can't go into all of it today. There's like four things that are a part of a, a Jewish marriage ceremony. They're all wrapped up in the Ten Commandments. And so that's really fascinating. And that just shows us again that the Ten Commandments, they don't have nothing to do with you and me. It was between God and Israel and their relationship. In fact, I always like to say today, Israel is the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And what does God do in eternity? He marries his bride and his body. And so you got this Jewish kingdom program. You got us today in the body. And for all of eternity, we are one. The bride and the body are brought together as one for all of eternity. What an amazing thing. But watch this. It gets better. So the only way the law applies to us today is really what Paul says. The law is good is if you use it lawfully. And how is it used lawfully for any of us today that are maybe Gentiles? It's when you don't know Christ and the law points out your sin and says you are guilty. You're a liar, a cheater, a stealer. You need a savior. Watch this in Romans 7. Here's what Paul says. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Excuse me. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Do you understand what's going on? That when you were crucified with Christ, when you, when you died with Christ, that old covenant that said you were a sinner, that was null and void. You're dead to that contract. You have a new contract. That new contract is what? It's Christ. He came to indwell you. He came to live in you. You became the temple and the holy of holies. Even when we were, even, uh, we are, even we are dead to the law to be joined to Christ. Stand therefore. Just stand in your freedom and know that you have been made one with Christ. We could say it this way. We traded the law on stone for the life in Christ. How beautiful is that? 
Like he is living and breathing in me. And you know, remember in the Gospels when the Jewish leaders were always trying to figure out what the law meant, right? And how to interpret it. Well, you got the Holy Spirit now. He'll tell you how to interpret the law. He'll tell you how to live the most righteous life you could ever imagine. A couple questions here. We're going to be wrapping up here. Go back to the Garden of Eden again. Before Adam and Eve sinned, before the fall, did the law exist? How many think the law existed before? How many think, and it did exist before? You know why it existed? Because you know what the law is? The law is the very character of God. When God says, do not lie, it's because I am the truth. When God says, do not kill, it's because I am life. When God says, do not have any other false gods, because I'm a jealous God. When he says, do not make any idols, it's because I'm a living God. And the law, yeah, the law existed in Christ before Adam and Eve sinned. Certainly it did. Here's the question. Did Adam and Eve need the law before they fell? Of course, they didn't. Why didn't they? They had Christ. They were perfect and holy in Christ. And when you were saved, God did a spiritual circumcision on you and cut out your evil, deceitful heart and gave you his heart and gave you his desires and placed you in Christ. You don't need that law. You have Christ. And you're not going to go out if you're in Christ living for him. You're not going to go out and lie and cheat and steal and have affairs and do all that stuff that the law prohibits You just don't need that law. In fact, the Bible tells us that the law was a guardian until what? Remember that verse? I think it's Romans 3.24. The law was a guardian until Christ came. When Christ came, we didn't need the law. We had the real deal. We had the living, breathing righteousness of God. In fact, you want something else fascinating here? So where's the first picture of the law in the Bible? It's not in Exodus 19. Where's the first picture of the law in the Bible? Garden of Eden at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I've I've gone through this before, how the tree of the knowledge of good and evil parallels the law. And the point was when God created Adam and Eve, it's like you don't want to live under a law. You want to live in me. You want to live in Christ. You don't want to live under law because the law just makes you want to sin. The law just points out how you're a sinner. You want to avoid the law. You want to live in me. I asked you at the outset, why did God put two trees in the Garden of Eden, right? Why not just the one tree, right? The, the tree of authority. Why did we need? Because God knew we would violate this tree and God needed, no, we would need a daily reminder and that's what these two trees are for us. I've said it before. Every day of your life, you get up every morning, it's like I can live over here at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of flesh, the tree of rules and religion or I can live over here at the tree of life. I can live in Christ. And this is the tree of liberty. This is the tree of legalism and license and law, and this is the tree of liberty in Christ. And when I'm free in Christ, I'm not going to go out and be a big bad sinner. I don't need a law to keep me from sinning. I need Christ. I'll show you that as we wrap up here today. Okay, Jesus Christ is the authority on a life of freedom. And let me take you to our last point. We'll close with this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery and i saw that that line of yoke of slavery and i immediately was reminded of another verse in scripture but here it is number five freedom is a paradox 
Freedom is a paradox. And so we're, to, we're supposed to avoid the yoke of slavery. How do I avoid the, yoke, avoid the yoke of slavery? It's in the gospel invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And everybody is living today in all practical terms. You're either living with the yoke of this world on you, the expectations of this world on you, or you're living with the yoke of Christ. And his yoke is light. Why is his yoke easy and light? Because he's bearing it. He's burying it, and I'm just attached to him. How amazing, how amazing, how amazing. Do you see the paradox here? How do I live in freedom? By yoking myself to Christ. How am I set free from this world? By becoming a slave and a servant of Christ. It reminded me down here in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You are severed. And, and, and understand, he's not saying here that you're going to lose your salvation. That's not it. Galatians 5, the context of Galatians 5 is not losing your salvation. It is what? It is living your salvation. It's living out your freedom in Christ. And, and you're, gonna be, you're not going to be yoked to Christ as you go through this world if you're living over here at the wrong tree. But if you become a slave of Christ, if you become a servant of Christ, if you choose to live that way, you will be free. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. Let me give you a... A last passage and a story to close. I saw this a few months back and I knew at some point it was going to be perfectly fitting. Look at what it says in John 1.14. I want you to notice something. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do you see how Jesus is identified here. It's kind of fascinating. He is identified as grace and truth. And in a sense, we could say this. Jesus, grace and truth, is juxtaposed with or pitted against the law. Like, yeah, the law is over here. God, this is never God's intention. Jesus Christ is over here. He is grace and truth. And how do I live in freedom? Through grace and truth. Like when I stumble, when I fall, whether it's through legalism or license or whatever sin gets a hold of me, God's grace can deliver me. But you know what else? His truth. If I walk in His truth, if I live in His authority, I won't sin. Yeah. That's so amazing to me. And, and you see it right there that Jesus, that maybe I'm not under the law, right, but I'm still under the truth and the authority of Jesus Christ. He is the authority on a life of freedom. Jesus sets me free and his is the authority because he is grace and he is truth. In fact, one last verse. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know, I asked you at the outset again, why did God put two trees in the Garden of Eden? I'll tell you why he put two trees in the Garden of Eden. Because number one, we are free from something. We are free from the law. We are free from sin. We are free from death and hell and the past. But you know what? We're also free to something. 
I'm, I'm free to love and, and, and I'm free to, 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 to give. I'm free to forgive and to serve and to be a brand ambassador for Christ. I'm not just free from, I am free to. That's the reality. I'm free to something, this life I have in Christ. Let me close with this story. I wish I had written this. This is so good. Think of yourself as living in an apartment house. You live there under a landlord who has made your life miserable. He charges you exorbitant rent. When you can't pay, he loans you money at a fearful rate of interest to get you even further into his debt. He barges into your apartment at all hours of the day and night, wrecks and dirties the place up, then charges you extra for not maintaining the premises. Your life is miserable. Then comes someone who says, I've taken over this apartment house. I purchased it. You can live here as long as you like free. The rent is paid up. I'm going to be living here with you in the manager's apartment. What a joy you are saved. You are delivered out of the clutches of the old landlord. But what happens? You hardly have any time to rejoice in your newfound freedom when a (laughs) comes at the door. And here he is, the old landlord. Mean, glowering, and demanding as ever. He has come for the rent, he says. What do you do? Do you pay him? Of course you don't. Do you go out and pop him on the nose? Well, no, he's bigger than you are. You confidently tell him uh, you'll have to take that up with a new landlord. He may bellow, threaten, wheedle, and cajole. You just quietly tell him, hey, take it up with a new landlord. If he comes back a dozen times with all sorts of threats and arguments, waving legal-looking documents in your face, you simply tell him yet once again, take it up with the new landlord. In the end, he has to. He knows it, too. He just hopes that he can bluff and threaten and deceive you into doubting that the new landlord will really take care of all things. Father God, thank you for being the landlord of our lives, for, for, for taking us, and you didn't just renovate us, you, you just blew us up and you built a brand new structure. We are a new creation in Christ. You gave us your heart, your desires. You placed us in you, in your son. We are free in you. And yeah, we live in a world that constantly wants to entice us and tempt us and, and wants to uh, take us captive. Oh, but we're free in you. Remind us of that every day. When we stumble, when we fall, may we know you are the may, may we may we know that you are all the grace that we need. And when we're struggling to do what we should do, may we just remember you are the truth. And if we live in, in, in your authority, we will live in true freedom. Thank you for this great day. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.